0: Hi, I'm Dave Barnes, and I'm John McLaughlin, and welcome to Dadville.
1: Dadville is a podcast where we talk about life, love, and the pursuit of awesome dadding.
0: It's funny thoughts and deep
1: talks. So please enjoy your time here in Dadville and enjoy this episode with Jefferson Bethke.
0: Jeff, we are so glad you're here. This is so. Here we are, at Dadville folks. We, this is. Jeff Bethke, which that is the coolest last name ever, by the way. What is the entomology of that book?
1: Well, and your first name is Jefferson. Does, does anybody call you Jefferson?
2: Yeah, so I would say, so Bethke, I think is like German or something. I, I didn't even find that out until I was like, I don't know, okay. the Ancestry.com thing like five years ago. But then, yeah, Je- Jefferson, That was that was yeah. one of those funny, weird things where it's actually so, I'm not going to make this a huge long story. It's not my real birth certificate name. My real birth certificate name is Jeffrey. I hated that name growing up. In high school, I started going by Jefferson as a funny nickname, like, and people actually call me that, like, that was my everyday name at high school, just, for, I don't know, just like funny, and then because of that, I then made up my MySpace name, and then because of that, I then made up my Facebook name, and this is all just continuing running joke, and then I accidentally had a video go viral, and it, like, stamped my name as, like, Jefferson forever, where, of course, you guys know... The business side was like oh you got to keep it that because you know xyz so it's not even my real name but i some people do call me it and you know the books go by that stuff like that isn't that funny
0: so what you're saying is you've built your career on a on a on a, a
2: hundred percent that was on what i was lie. getting to yeah. <laughs> this is actually a confessional moment <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> eventually yeah i think we got I what we need good. we can get out okay so let me let me let me uh give a little bit of the brag sheet here let me the the, the background yours is so humble jeff i gotta tell you like i I kept trying to find all these, like, stats and these (laughs) books. And, like, you've just kept your people. You're like, no, we're going to keep this right to the point. So um, Jefferson, uh, not real name, Bethke, is New York Times bestselling author of (laughs) Jesus is Greater (laughs) Than Religion, and It's Not What You Think. He and his wife, Alyssa, host the Real Life podcast and run FamilyTeams.com, an online initiative equipping families to live as multi-generational teams on mission. They live in Maui, which already is suffer, for the, Lord. suffer for the Lord so great strife yes amen to that there you go with their daughters it's, it's like a uh, missionaries yeah, in New Zealand exactly but, you know, none of those words matter they don't make sense together uh with their daughters Kinsley and Lucy and Son Cannon uh and now and what we're so excited we're thrilled to hear it anyway I mean we've you know ever since I've known Annie Downs we've been doing podcasts she has mentioned you and it's so fun that we get connected because um this book especially is just you know with dadville but there's a book you just put out called take back mm. your family that is wonderful it is it is i can't recommend this book enough for people we were laughing and we were talking about this right before we started recording but this this uh this is only really the second well i guess third time john because we did the not so black and white book so this is like our even though we've had all these guests on there, yeah. our authors this is actually only the only third time which is funny because it's the third in sequence <laughs> that we've done like this, we actually have like we had turned over and, a new leaf? and done the interview on that. Yeah, we have, or we we have been. Or it could huffing be said on that the we page, oh. and I that's that what one. makes us great podcasters. You are welcome, yes. world. You welcome are dad, welcome, brother, everybody. Bottom, Bottom of, of the, the barrel. barrel. So, Jeff, what I think is really amazing about this book, and John and I were kind of doing mm-hmm. our prep work, uh, and a lot of people think that hey, you guys don't prep, <laughs> but we do. Um, one yeah. of <laughs> which makes it even sadder. <laughs> it just really, really shows <laughs> the trajectory of our podcast. Um, is It really is such a plug and play to this podcast. I mean, it's like you know we read a lot of books that are fun and we get to talk about, but this is such a direct. In fact, when I saw um, the name of the book uh, on Amazon, uh, I immediately thought this. This I was like, why have we not gotten Jeff on? This is the perfect time to do it. And so the book is really, really, really great. And so I kind we have like a million things to talk about. So we're just going to jump in because I feel like this is this is such wonderful. I was about to say juicy, and I, I was like, "No, I'm not going to say that." But yet, I did. I'll, um, tell you. I'll receive juicy. So, okay, you want to mm-hmm. see that in your in your life? So, um, so can you sort of to begin because th- it's so much of the book is about this idea of yeah. the nuclear family, um, which mm-hmm. sounds dangerous. Um, it is, but. Um, can you sort of explain like, you know, the myth, like you talk about the myth of the nuclear family, like, which I know is a lot. So you, so feel free to sort of do bullet points, but it's such a chunk of this book. And I think as we talk about it, you have to sort of explain. And it was so
1: fascinating. I mean, it, it was so interesting to learn kind of the bullet points of the the history because, because I like a lot of people think think yeah. the nuclear family is like, that's is. like the beacon of what we're yeah. all striving for. And it always has been exactly but.
2: exactly that. And so that was the that was the that, that seed of the idea is what kind of began to unravel me into a couple year journey. You know what I mean of, of of seeing a different better way. Now there's a lot of places I could go with that, but just to start with that basic premise, I think yeah, I think um, the, the I, I talk about this idea of like the nuclear family, and again this ideal of kind of two parents, two kids, maybe a dog, maybe a white picket fence, 1950s, leave it to Beaver vibe. You know, we all have a little different picture of our in our head of that, but that's essentially what we think of when we think of that. is is a myth, and what I mean by that is it's not actually God's grandest vision for family. It's not God's largest vision for family. Now, we're in an interesting cultural moment, by the way, where there's a particular set of the culture that is attacking the nuclear family in a radically different way than what I'm saying. So you got that side of things. And so then there's a lot of people then trying to protect the nuclear family out of defensiveness and fear. And what I'm saying is I think it's kind of neither. I think God has a grander, larger vision for family that is not that. Now, now let's just, we'll get into a lot of this, I'm sure, through the questions, but the one thing I'll talk about why it's not is in David Brooks, if you have more time, he's a you know the seminal New York Times journalist, I love him. He kind of essentially undergirds that entire first chapter of me uh, that I wrote in the book with his article, the, the End of the Nuclear Family, I think is what he calls it. And he uses these phrases, and, and what he talks about is the problems, right? And, and one of the main problems is, well, before 1950, when you were to ask someone, hey, what does family mean to you? No one before 1950 would have said two parents, two kids, and a dog and a white picket fence, right? No one would have said that. Most people would have said, when you when you said, what do you think of when you think of family? Most people would have thought about 20 to 25 people, mm. an interconnected kind of corporate web of relationships that usually involved about three to four generations on a compound or, or multi houses in that regards or very near to each other, centered around an economic trade so that this group of people actually would have all centered like the hub of economic activity when to a family in 1750 would have been in the home now to a family in 1930 that would have been in a factory and it would have only been the father not the family right so that's so it's that already is like and then that vision goes back pretty far actually all the way to what I would consider the biblical mandate for family that's not just that but that is a, a lot closer. God has a lot more um, things on that than just like the things I just said. But so that, that that's, first of all, it's just not what it, like, it's, it's actually an experiment. That's what I say in the book. It's actually a newer thing. Mm-hmm. Um, how's the fruit going for us? And like David Brooks talks about, the nuclear family in the West is really only achievable for the rich and the wealthy um, and the privileged because uh, it's a very fragile asset. If anything happens to the two parents, two kids— that family just implodes, right? Like whether it's an affair, whether it's pornography, whether it's a divorce, whatever, the family essentially, it's very difficult to keep that family knitted. But yet again, when you have 25 people, four generations, et cetera, then there's a massive catch of a safety net when something happens in the family that's really difficult. And so there's that, and and so he talks about, it's only possible, by the way, for the people that have a lot of privilege and wealth because they can fill the gaps with their money, when before, we were meant to fill the gaps with relationship. Hmm. So that's a fascinating you know, premise. And there's a lot of rabbit holes we can go on in there. But I think that's essentially the first one. Second thing is, it's consumer-based. So again, not, you, know, you, you get the era of the Industrial Revolution, factories, mass production, efficiency, etc., the assembly line. And all of a sudden, we start creating a nation of consumers rather than contributors, we actually started to make stuff so that people, and, does, and fake desires. We wanted to, you know, almost fake and stir and build up desires that people never even had until we started marketing to them. Um, and that creeps so much into the family that the family now became about, not about, okay, this unit is not about going and doing something huge in the world in regards to impact, mission, love, neighbors, etc. But now this family is just about everyone just getting everything they want. getting entertained, right? Consuming things, um, feeling filled up, not in like the love sense, but in like the consumeristic sense. And so those are kind of the two, Mm three-ish things that I think I argue in the book, put us on a trajectory that now that we're in 2021, um, I think we need to look at the data and be like, that was a bad move. It's essentially what I'm saying. Like, I think that's the last 70, 80 years have not led us to a good place. And then again, one last thing I'll say is there's a Harvard psychologist, sociologist, that was uh, a, the preeminent family psychologist back in like the 1940s. I talk about him in the book, Carl Zimmerman. And he actually makes the argument that when the nuclear family shows up, when families get smaller like that in past societies, Rome, Greece, etc., it's not so we think about that and we think, oh, that's a sign of health. Two parents, the kids, That you know what I mean? He right. actually argues and shows with immense data yeah. for thousands of years of societies before. That's actually like the last domino to fall of unhealth. He's like, when you see family, and he calls them atomistic instead of nuclear. But when a family gets that shrunk and they become consumer and need-based, um, it's actually, he goes, that's kind of when society's about to start crumbling. And then again, I think he, he died in like 1950, and his research has shown itself true for the last 70 years. Jeez, that is
0: fascinating. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you just referenced that I, that I want to read a little bit to people in the book is this idea of factory-formed versus farm-formed, which is one of the hardest things I've ever read in my life. But um, <laughs> factory-formed, so some of the qualities are uh, factory again, which is... Which is uh, arguably the way that it's disintegrated into right Mm -hmm. is centers around consumption. As you said, acts like a club, um, linear with no limits outsource Mm -hmm. and amnesia Where farm formed, which is the more traditional family, meaning like hundreds of years ago. Mm -hmm. And up until, I guess you said like mid century lately centers around contribution, uh, looks like a team rhythmic and lives within limits there's ownership, and there's a story formed around it, which, you know, that mm. there's you do such a good job of some of these things, but, you know, as you said with the um, factory formed, it's hard to not read that and suddenly kind of take a little inventory of your family and go like, mm. yeah, I mean, we've got some of both, yeah. but man, we have some of both instead of just being like, no, we're like a little farm cranking our thing out and very, you know, centrally, you know, we're substantiated by who, you know, it's hard not to read that and sort of feel a little oh, yeah, oh.
2: yeah, but I think but there should be an encouragement there too. And I think it was um let me be clear that it's it's a metaphor, right? Like I'm not yeah, telling yeah, everyone yeah. Go, yeah. go 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 build a family farm, go get property, go start, you know, growing cucumbers. If right. you want to do that, do your thing. Right. But and, and and that's a that's a cue from Wendell Berry, one of my favorite authors. Yes. Absolutely. He's brilliant. Um, There's only two pieces of writing I essentially read every single year because I feel like they're so good I want to have them saturated in my heart. He has an essay called Feminism, Body, and the Machine and it's about 20 pages long and I read that every single year. That is one of the most centering, brilliant pieces of writing that um, I can read uh, every single year. It's just brilliant. But he talks about that, right? where He he says, you know, um, he calls it, he uses the word agrarian Mm -hmm. versus industrialized. And so he says, of course, Um, You know, and and he even kind of says that, yeah, now, now, even when you look at farming today, the industrialized spirit has seeped into agrarian spirit. So like we have farming now that is industrialized. It's not this, this, you know, beautiful rhythmic thing anymore. It's, it's extraction, it's efficiency, and it's just like killing the world. Um, And so he says, it's like, it's kind of a metaphor where they can seep into each other. So he just says, yes, of course we're in an industrialized age. We all have jobs that we all have. Like we're not, he's not saying go open a farm but let the agrarian spirit seep into that. And then that's where I get to that part in the book of giving four or five markers that says, hey, what would it look like to integrate a little bit more, to take a little bit more ownership? And I think it's a really helpful metaphor then once you realize that, um, that you know what I mean? That like, okay, I can, what does it look like for our family to, the, for the one you, you mentioned at the end, have, have, a, have, a, have a, a story that forms us. You know, you look at every good sports team, you look at every good business, uh, and most of them have a very profound, compelling, founding story, and they tell it a lot, a lot. Like it's at all the trainings, it's at all the things, it's like it almost becomes a myth, right? And I mean myth not in the sense of like it's a lie, but I mean myth in the sense of like ancient story that kind of infuses our identity. And so um, everyone has these founding myths, right? You go into a Chick-fil-A, almost every single one in the nation. And you go next to the, it's usually right by the bathroom in that little nook that most of them have. There's a wall. And what is that wall doing? That wall is saying like 1955, Kathy did, you know, did this 1962. We opened our 10th store 19. Like they they're, they're trying to disseminate and, and massively tell a story because they know if they just keep talking about it, put it everywhere, plaster it up. It forms people. Right, it kind of like it actually like gets into your body and your nerves and your psyche and your sociology, and and farms do that really well, right? Factories, you can kind of you sometimes hear maybe like my grand my grandfather worked in the factory and my dad did and I did too. A little bit more rare, but I know plenty. I actually, personally I know plenty of people. It's like my grandpa owned this farm, ran this farm. My dad did, and now I do, um, and I expanded it and changed it, etc. There's something about farms that they tend to be very story formed, very connected a story. So what would it look like for a family to do that metaphorically? I think it's like telling the story. Even when I just said about Chick-fil-A, what, like, can your kids, you know, as, if, as a dad out there, can your kids even recite when you got married, what your, what your love story was, who their grandparents are when they met, what was the most difficult season of your marriage? Just like, I mean, you can go on and on with all these, right? But like, they should be able to, because I think that's a, that's an ethos that's really powerful. I don't know if you guys know my buddy, um, JP, Jonathan Puckluda, he's a pastor down in Dallas. Good guy. He, wrote, he writes a bunch of books on dating. They were just visiting out here, him and his family. And there was just this little moment. I, lo- I loved it where we were all at the dinner table and they were just, we were telling stories. And then I noticed his kids, they kept doing the thing where they would like push on his shoulder. Like, dad, tell him this story, tell him this story. And it was all like JP stories when he was a kid. But, but they've told him so much in the family that the kids like are addicted to the stories. Do you know what I mean? And I'm like, that is, people don't realize, but yeah. there's a lot of research on how much that acts like glue. That is such a significant glue to a mm-hmm. family team when you just constantly tell stories, ask your parents' stories, put your, put, I, I, I call in the book, I think, I call the grandparents, you know when I mean, grandparents, mean like, you know, married family, like me and Alyssa, like our, our parents are the in-laws, so the kids' grandparents. Um, I call them like the chief storytellers. They should be the chief storytellers. That's that's. I think grandparents' main job in a family is to be the story gatekeepers. If you think about it, how crazy is this, right? So the oldest generation alive in a family, maybe they're sixty, maybe they're eighty-five years old, whatever. Like top, top generation, okay? Um, they can span six generations with their life. They most likely can remember their grandparents. So that's one, two, three upstream, and then now that they're the oldest, they can remember three downstream. One, two, three down. That's actually a, like, do you realize how big of an asset that is? That that, that they can, they are holding collectively the story of six generations. I just don't think we tap into that enough, you know?
0: Yeah. You know, you, you you mentioned this too, which is, which kind of dovetails uh, into this other thought, but uh, (laughs) I was telling John earlier, uh, one of the things that I want to work into a bit at a show is like, uh, I don't know how to make it funny yet, but just the idea of like, I, I realized in a conversation with a friend the other day that. Like two or three of the guys I was talking to didn't know what their dads did. And we and I thought it was mm. hysterical. Like it didn't hit yeah. me as sad in the moment. I thought Yeah. And so I wanted to just Bit at a show where it's like, all right, buddy, real quick, guy, <laughs> buddy, would you just raise your hand if you know what your dad does for a living. And like, you know, it's all thirty and forty and fifty year old people and like yeah. and just, you know, riff on that, I don't know where the humor is in it, but I just think it's pretty hysterical. But it suddenly got really sad, which you know, i, well, I it's like dark that's dark comedy. Well that's it dark is comedy. It's, yeah, it's dark. <laughs> but like I realized right. as you you, true. you quoted Iron John, which I remember trying yep. to read like in my 20s as a young buck like I should you yeah. know, it's not the it's not the
2: most engaging book
0: yeah, it, it's, it's tricky, but in Iron John, how you know you mentioned it talks about kids not knowing what their parents do, but out of this place you just yeah. said where you have these chief storytellers and the idea that mm-hmm. that the way we see our parents and their parents is we look up to them to say, hey, tell me, what, tell me these mm-hmm. things. And, and it really hit me in such a different way reading that and going, isn't it crazy? And, and why is that, that we're like that these days, that so many of, of and I wonder for the people listening to the podcast, um, the six and a half million people. Well yeah,
2: and I can tell you why you know, too. Yeah. It's so the main the main reason is because we have Google. Like, right? So like so in, in, in all of tribal cultures before us, right? Um, you, you the grandparents were actually the people that kept you alive. Like they were the the wisdom, everything you needed to know in life was locked within the, 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 the chief elder of yeah. the community. Yeah. Everything. Right. They had spent 40, 50 years learning how to hunt, learning how to read the waves, learning how to whatever it was, right? Whatever mm-hmm. culture you're in, mm-hmm. how to like all wisdom was locked within them, and so you had to apprentice under them, right? Uh, and then, and then, and then, and then, same thing with your kids below you to even survive. But now that we have information and Google at our disposal, we don't. I mean, I don't mean this realistically, but we don't need our grandparents, yet. right? Um, in that way anymore. And so it's kind of created this massive vacuum where grandparents and the oldest generation are, first of all, deeply lonely, deeply isolated, like research supports this like crazy, um, you know, and also deeply insecure. They feel unneeded. You know, I, I think I joke about it in the book, but you know, and the one really helpful exercise is to think of like what a peak human is in each society, right? So in the West, what's the peak human most? What's, it, what's kind of our telos, our ideal human? In general, it's usually a 23-year-old ripped You know what I mean? 0% body fat, tan, good looking, like whatever, right? Just the American ideal of beauty, handsomeness, you know, and probably really intelligent, maybe Ivy League, whatever. Um, You know, we can quickly riff that off. But if you look in the scripture, there's like zero reference to that being the ideal human, zero. Hmm. But there's actually a lot of references uh, uh, to the ideal human. Like the script, the Psalms talk about it all the time of like the, 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 the telos of a human is someone with literally, it says in Psalms, gray hair. So it's essentially saying the opposite, right? So that's, that's a competing story that the West believes that, you know, that our, our, our obsession with youth, our obsession with never aging, all these things puts this as our ideal when scripture holds up the exact opposite. And so I give a ton of practicals in the book of like, you know, and also it's crazy too, how easy it is to put grandparents on like the story seat rather because that's an easier thing to do than a lot of other engaging. We feel like pressure by or insecure by with our parents, right? It's everyone can just tell stories. And so that's what I say is like it's crazy how much it'll begin to heal your family dynamic if you just start asking the your the oldest generation questions. Wow. That's it. And and we actually have built it into our rhythm where every every week, Friday night on our Shabbat dinner, we call it, you know, we basically just practice a fun kind of party every Friday night to begin Sabbath. Um, you know, Alyssa's my parents don't live here, but Alyssa's parents both so we've done it when we travel. But listen parents live here and so they come over almost every Friday night and I just stand back actually and I prep the kids every Friday morning and just say hey think of a couple questions to ask anything and it's crazy how they only have to do two or three and then the night is just set it just goes on right like and and it's and kid questions are the best right it's just like what what was your first Christmas like what was what was um do you remember did you ever shoot a bb gun um you know one of the ones that our kids asked uh their great grandpa just a little bit ago was were you around when dinosaurs were around that's fun they love <laughs> he meant those. it dead serious <laughs> they love that yes but he meant it dead serious <laughs> like he was like you are so old <laughs> um but but it's crazy what just little things of like tell me a memory about a bicycle or tell me you know what middle school was like just it's crazy right what what that brings to the table it makes the middle generation kind of sit back and it creates a really powerful dynamic with old and young and then it also super is honoring, I think, to the oldest generation in a really soft, easy way. Um, and you know what's crazy? Back to the beginning, full circle of your question of how, like, why we don't do it, we don't know a lot of things, is my wife has said, like, a million times over, she'll just be like, I never heard this story before. Yeah. Or I never knew this. Um, and <laughs> she's like, she's their kid. Like, she grew up in their house. But it's, like, because we don't ask. It's just so much more asking. I can't you know?
0: imagine what that does for their confidence and feeling loved, too. You know, just that they would be honored in that way oh yeah
1: yeah well and for the for the younger every generation that's younger hearing from the older generation it has to put everything that they face in their present any given day in such a more informed context which actually uh, this is just i'm not meaning to segue back to this but like your book, especially the the beginning where you were kind of laying out sort of the history of the myth of the nuclear Mm -hmm. family, for me, did that for me. I mean, it was so... What's great about it is I think, you know, we're talking about family, we're talking about parents, we're talking about kids, which is obviously super important to everyone listening. No matter what your family looks like, that's important to you, you know? So people can get very defensive when you start getting prescriptive about things. But what I think is so great about how you kind of laid out um, this myth of the nuclear family is it's like, you can, you can lay your emotions aside and just look at history and some of the things that like blew my mind that I'd love for you to just kind of talk about a little bit was the, uh, was it Henry Ford who had that, that uh, guy who, you know, arguably, you know, had such an impact on modern society as we know it by basically inventing like the assembly line he also had this uh, i forget what it's called but he he tried to create some sort of like town that was uh outside of his invention he was like steve jobs version one yeah yeah
2: that's a great way to put it so it's called greenville um and essentially what it was is at the towards the end of his life I mean, to keep a long story short, essentially, just realized in reflecting, he he didn't like what he created. He didn't like the ramifications society. He didn't like. Speaking. He
1: was seeing what it was doing mm-hmm. to society as a whole. And and the best yeah.
2: word I use for that is disintegration. He realized what he what he created was disintegrating families, society. It was there was a lot of um, uh, social glue. You know what I mean? That was that was kind of um, perceived as just uh, as this the default. That he began to unravel, but yeah. not on not on purpose. But he began to unravel on accident by ramifications of what he created: the assembly, right. the assembly line, the mass efficiency, the scale at which he was able to kind of reach um, production, um, and also factor like factories. By the way, so even though it was a little bit factories and obviously were open before him, he kind of reached um, that that peak model of like pulling the man out of the home and setting him here to do one job. You know what I mean? That was kind of mindless. Um, That wasn't a thing before 1908 or whatever when that, you know, his factory opened. So, yeah, but so what he did is then he essentially towards the end of his life used most of his wealth to essentially create a fake town where he would buy up old schools, old churches, anything that kind of gave him any emotional connection to the old world, quote unquote. he, He began to buy, haul it to this Greenville town and basically create a fake town because he missed it so much. That's just that alone is fascinating. Right. I'm not saying like, oh, we all should do that. I mean, you can still visit it to this day. Um, but it's it's crazy that uh, basically it's kind of like the Steve Jobs thing I talk about in the book of like, man, Steve Jobs wouldn't let his kids have iPads because he because usually the people usually the people at the tip of the spear are going to the ones that are going to see the ramifications the quickest. Doesn't make sense. The consequences right. the quickest. Yeah, yeah. And so I just think we need to pay attention to more stuff like that, you know? And so yeah, that was a that was a, a big thing. And then to your point too, I actually agree. I think there's a lot more families are all over the map. And that's one thing I love about the biblical vision of family over and against the nuclear family, is there's room at the table for every type of family when when your model is family team, not nuclear family. Right, because some teams can be big, right. some teams can be small, some te- teams can only have one coach. I was I was I was born and raised with you know a, by a single mom. Um, one can be blended coaches, teams that merge, whatever you want. Like that, the metaphor that Scripture actually does use, which we talk about, multi-generational family team on mission. But essentially, the heart is just a family team. Um, is is way more um, kind and gentle and appropriate to everyone being able to fit within that model. When I think so many of us feel that, that um, pressure to be the ideal, be the nuclear ideal, and we miss. Um, when God, you know, and sure, God has, you know, um, I think opinions on, on certain things. But at the end of the day, it's about uh, it's about the mission. Meaning God, wherever your family is today, whatever it looks like today, whether there's maybe some regret even today, God wants to put your team in the game. God wants to enable you to go bring his blessing and goodness into the world, which was the very first mandate in Genesis, and it's still the mandate today. And then even single people fit on that. Like, that's what people don't realize. Like, I was, people, single people will message me and be like, oh, you know, do you not care about us? And I'm like, you're, you're just, you're just actually revealing you still believe in the nuclear model, right? By even that question, because I Mm -hmm. I just go, do you have a last name? Mm -hmm. They say, yes. I say, cool. You're on a family Mm -hmm. team. Like there's no one that's not, that's not how it, that's not how it works, right? right? Like, so that, that's the, we don't, that's the problem is we don't see it as this interconnected web of married people, single people, multi-generations, all using their assets, their talents and their giftings, um, to go steward those on God's mission to bring his blessing and goodness into the world. So yeah, that's, I started rambling, but that is what I would say to that question.
0: Hey Dave. Yeah, John.
1: My head is really starting to spin with all the fall Ooh, activities going yes. on.
2: Pumpkin
0: patch, photo shoots, corn planning. mazes, yep. costume planning. Yeah, I don't know where to begin. Well, here's what's funny. is That's you basically all year long, but True. boy, does it really get True. heightened. It here. intensifies yes, around it the holiday. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, there were way too many things on my October to-do list. You know that, John. I've always got a million things I'm trying to pull off. It's crazy. Why do yeah. I do this? Well, luckily, shopping for life insurance, Dave? with policy genius uh-huh. is one of the easiest uh-huh. things to check off your list. That huh. ever-growing list that I know. I, listen, that's me. I'm a Barnes. That's what we do. Policy Genius makes it easy to compare quotes from over a dozen top insurers all in one place. But why compare, John? Well, for starters, you could save 50%,
1: no. people. You thought I was going to say 45%, but nope. it's 50% yep. or more on life insurance by Jeez. comparing quotes with Policy Genius. How, what is that numerically like as far as money is concerned? Off the top of my head, it's about $1,300 or more per year on life insurance by using Policy Genius
0: to compare policy. Listen, John, you know me. I'm a lover, not a fighter. And I'll tell you another thing I love, and that's that the licensed experts at Policy Genius offer such wonderful customer service. Real people talking to real people. They're real. Because most importantly, they work for you and not the insurance companies. Guys, Policy Genius's
1: experts are your trusted
0: source through the complicated life insurance shopping and buying process. Yes. Listen, and get this, John eligible applicants can get covered in as little as a week No, thanks to an award-winning policy that knocks out that tricky standard medical exam requirement Mm, with just one simple call instead, John.
1: Getting started is as easy as one, two, three. First, head to policygenius.com and in no time at all, Policy Genius will calculate how much insurance coverage you need and compare personalized quotes just
0: for you. Listen, guys, head to PolicyGenius.com to get started today. PolicyGenius. When it comes to insurance, what, Johnny? It's nice to get it right. Another thing you talk about, which you know, all of this stuff flows so well together. Uh, you say, and I'm reading your quote here: "We think we are doing right by our kids if we send them off to adult into adulthood to start a new family." To your point about, you know, how the nuclear makes us smaller, and then you have the bigger that that we're trying to keep alive. And then if you skip ahead a couple sentences. Uh, I love this point you make, so why, and you said this was your struggle, is, so why would I want to send, spend so much time and energy pouring into something and building something that will just vanish into thin air in 20 years? Like starting a new yep. family, just send your kids off. So mm-hmm. you you go on by saying, so who wants to build something that has a self-destruct bomb written, in, written into its very code, and finally you say I'm convinced this is why it's so much easier, and I think this is such a fascinating point and alluring to put most of our energy toward work and business projects. We are inherently created to build things at last. We are built for legacy making. We are just usually putting it in the wrong places. I thought that was so great. That's so well said. Um, And so challenging. Yeah. And it kind of explains
1: why, like a lot of this identity and mission that you're saying used to be in the family is now where we see that being done Mm -hmm. is in the corporate world. Yeah. Like you're saying with like Apple yep. or like Chick-fil-A or something like that. Yep. They, they, they know what their mission is as a team. Yeah. You
2: know? Well, you guys, you guys nailed it um, where there's a couple things there. One, so there's only kind of – there's two really helpful metaphors out in our world today that we can learn from uh, for our families, and that's businesses and, and sports teams, right? I mean, they're the best examples of, of flourishing teams. Now, inherent in those ones is the mission, meaning if they don't like if, – like if they become consumeristic – and they flip and invert the mission, and they no longer are doing why, what they're there to exist to do. They go bankrupt, like they stop existing. The family, by its nature, though, can get um, stolen by lies while still existing, and that's what's happened. Yeah. Does that make sense? And so that's kind of the problem. That's the problem we, we, we face today, and specifically to you know your guys' audience. I, I don't I don't. I'm sure it's not every single listener is a dad, but you know, knowing that dads are listening, that. Um, that man, I am convinced that that is why. And again, I think both men and women struggle with this. I've heard, heard it from both, but I think in general, I think that's why men have such a disconnect to parenting and such a disconnect to their families is because they want to build something. They don't want to, you know, just create a nest or they don't want to just baby something that that's going to self implode or, you know, self-destruct. And my thing in the book is just saying, that's what God, that's the, that's the blueprint is to build something. Like literally the blueprint is in Genesis to go steward and reign and rule over the earth. Now informed, you know, through the lens of the cross and Jesus, which is an upside down reigning and ruling through love and sacrifice, etc. But we are called to reign and rule and kick back the darkness. And God has given you players on your team. And so one of the saddest things to me is to see dads who are phenomenal coaches and phenomenal leaders and phenomenal fathers, even in the metaphorical sense at their work, Right. Um, and then they're, right, they're, they're, right. The, the the main team God gave them to 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 be on mission in their entire life um, is just sitting on the bench at home, like untapped. You know, right? it, it is. Um, and so and so, go ahead, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I just got excited. I got. Some... I was. I don't even know what I was going to say. So yeah, go yeah.
0: ahead. Um, <laughs> I was going to break into God Bless America, but now I've changed my mind. The, the thing, I, I, I think this is something that is I I think can't be talked about enough amongst dads, and I think the dilemma here is kind of twofold to me. I think one um it's on us as dads because we are not leading that well so and i think this is what this book Mm -hmm. again we'll keep plugging it because it's wonderful but you talk about and take back your family is you know we have this uh job right you you explain it well as dads you know to coach and lead and encourage and disciple and mentor uh to give vision to carry out the vision all these wonderful things but so one we're just not doing great with that like you know we're following people and mm. it's intimidating it, it it requires all of this intentionality and time and so you're speaking exactly the problem here is you, if your time is already given to something else you know it's andy stanley's choosing to cheat things you, you know you're either going to cheat your family you're going to cheat your job Ooh. but you can't one of them's going to suffer um yep. so i think that's one but i think two you know i'll never forget sitting in uh uh we had this kind of mass uh, Sunday school meeting at church. It's probably five years ago. And the director for our women's ministry got up and said something that I think about so much. She said, you know, she was addressing the women uh, that were all in the in the uh, meeting. And she said, hey, gals, like we have these things going on. We'd love for y'all to be involved. It's going to be help. This is what we're doing. These Bible studies, these service projects, whatever. And she said, I want to talk to them for a second. She's like, guys, if you want your women to serve, you're going to have to step up and like do some like – watch the kids mm. on nights you're not used to come home early yeah. to, to she said because this is as much your job of creating a space for them to go do this as it is theirs doing it yeah. and it really affected me and I think you can almost flip that on its head too with I think the family dynamic because one of the tricky things and, and you know you can blame it on the West you can blame whatever is there is this real sense that kind of mom runs a home. And that I think is true in a lot of really wonderful ways, right? I think that is mm-hmm. a, a wonderful thing. But I think too, what what has to happen is there has to be this space created that dad can step into. And I think it's hard sometimes, yeah. I think a lot of dads can feel this energy of kind of walking to the home and having the greatest of intentions, but the minute it upsets the apple cart of the groove of the house or the rhythm of the night, which both of yeah. those were eighties R&B songs, but I digress. <laughs> um, I didn't get it either yeah, of them, but they yeah, sounded good amazing i was i was born in 89 so i don't know what that Group meant of the house and but i appreciate uh, that yes i could
2: but no i i agree i think you nailed it i'll say two things there one i think kind of cuts the maybe is a little convicting to the wife one's a little convicting to the dad um is yes i i 100 agree and i think you actually nailed on a very practical pain point on when you try to make this play out and then it starts to converge in that in that place And that's common. And I mean, you know, I mean, we have the ministry that kind of this book came out of with our mentors. is called family teams where we have like thousands of families that are kind of always working on this and kind of, it's like a little think tank and, you know, kind of helping with the resources. So we get to kind of always see like how we're, you know, and this is a common one. This is a common one. And so I think a couple things there. I think one, um, what would I say first? I think, um, well, first of all, that's the, 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 all of the problems we've been talking about, whether it's the industrial revolution, then the consumeristic family, and then all these different types of things, each domino that's fell the last 200 years has made it better for everyone else in the family and worse for the moms. Yes. So that just has yes. to be stated. That just has to be stated. Like moms mm-hmm. are, and, and we don't realize mm-hmm. that, Like like every time that something has happened in the family that's been a drastic change, you know, again, industrial yeah. revolution, father coming out of the home, going to a factory, this and this, you know, these people going here, the consumeristic family, whatever it is, all these kind of shifts. Every time it makes life better for everyone else and worse for the mom. Um, Because again, when everyone was, when everyone was living multi-generationally, do you realize how much less, how much uh, more the mom was able to uh, share? Like everything was shared. It was so much, the kids, the, the everything, all the, all of those pressure points. And now it's like the mom has to do everything. So first of all, I just want to say, I I recognize that. That's why, that's one of my, I think the biggest pain points of why this model doesn't work is it just crushes moms, the nuclear ideal, the Western ideal tends to just crush women and moms. And so that alone should already be like, yeah, this, if it doesn't lead to human flourishing and it doesn't lead to like biblical flourishing, then it's probably not right. So that's first thing. Second thing though, is back to your point about that, the home thing, there has been a stereotype in specifically religious Christian circles where kind of work is dad's domain. Okay. And then like the home is mom's domain. And I I just think that's just wrong. Like if there's any ounce of that spirit in a home, I think it has to go, has to be confessed, has to be admitted. Mm -hmm. I would say another way to put it is like the home is not mom's domain. The home is the family's domain. And the work, even if the dad goes to work, is not the father's domain. That is actually the family's domain sending him out as an ambassador to that job to represent Mm -hmm. the team. Like those are radically different mental shifts um, that make a big difference. And so when you see the home as the family's domain, where everyone has ownership of, then and, and this actually is a collision point. Like I remember, me and Alyssa, like six, seven years ago, I was wanting to. I got really captured by this idea and was stepping in it. And I had all these ideas about what I want to do in the home and I want to change this for intentionality. This and I thought she was just going to be jacked, like, oh yeah, like Jeff's finally being intentional. She like hated it, <laughs> you know, because she was like, kind of like, whoa, this is <laughs> whoa, this is my space, right? Like this is my space. Um, yeah. But man, yeah. she would totally agree now and see that like when you. It's a superpower when actually every, when you have five people at the table or two people at the table trying to create an atmosphere and a culture, not just one. You know what I mean? Right. When every talent and every gift is kind of saying, we want to represent that here. And that even goes for the kids. I think kids should have more ownership over what a home looks like, what it feels like uh, um, and what it does, you know, than more than just the parents. Another way to put it, I talk about in the book is, um, Make, make the home a, a theme park for the family's values, mm. right? So when you go to Disneyland, it's I'm obsessed with actual Walt Disney. All, I've read all his biographies. I love the story, all that stuff. When you go to Disneyland, I mean, the guy's been dead for decades. His values are still bleeding out everywhere when you step in that place, right? Um, because he created a place where his his values were put into practice into a theme park. And so people he wanted people to come enjoy his values. That's a weird, kind of an interesting way to put it, but it's true. Mm-hmm. And so what would it look like to create a home? You know, whether it's, you're a really fun family, right? So we, we like to have a lot of fun and we're a little bit more rambunctious than most families. So we are So we are totally okay with our kids scootering. They make a track in the downstairs floor. Like we don't care about that, right? Like we don't, we don't want home to be fragile. We don't want home to be the place where the kids feel like they have mm-hmm. to walk on eggshells because everything's gonna break. Um, now that means we have to buy a certain type of furniture for that. We have to, you know, create a certain atmosphere for that. Um, you know, whatever it is, well, we really care about reading. So there, you will not go in one room where there's probably not 25 books or one bookshelf everywhere. I know another family who has that, you know, really cares about reading, but he, what he did is, you know, those old, like 1500s, like, um, lecterns that kind of preachers used to preach from where the big old Bible would sit open. Yeah. He bought, he bought like 15 of those, set them around the house. And then just always, there's always one book open. <laughs> there's always one book open and he always changes and rotates the books. And he says, it's fascinating that when you just put a book open in a room, how many people gravitate towards it rather than if it was closed on a shelf. And he's like, that creates a culture, huh. right? Of just like, you kind of just want to walk yeah. over and what's going on here, you know? Um, so I think that's yeah. a really fun way. Like that, that gets us, our family excited. Like how can we create a space that represents our values, that not just the moms, but the, the moms is part of it, um, the dads, the kids, et cetera. Hmm.
1: I'm really big on, um, I'm like a big neat freak. So this is making <laughs> me want to put like cleaning supplies, yes. and things of that nature. That's your values. In every room. I like that in every room. You have a mop and a bucket, what just always <laughs> yeah. waiting. Can you talk a little bit about, I, I was really fascinated by the family scouting report. Mm. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? I think that's so, like, I want to do that in in my family with my yeah. kids and my parents and my siblings, all that kind of stuff. I think it's so totally. interesting.
2: Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, there's an easy download that we have at familyteams.com about halfway down on the homepage where you can get it. Um, but it's not, that's just like a little fun, uh-huh. simple starter, but it, it's more about the, the philosophy of the idea that you can do with a journal, you can do whatever. Essentially, the idea is, again, when you play on sports teams or when you're in a business, one of the things that successful teams in both of those domains are good at is naming and releasing the particular gifts on the team, Mm. right? Like you are, and it's the parent's job, by the way, to do that. It's the coach's job, by the way, to do that. And coaches sometimes are naming and releasing players in ways that they never would have felt released or didn't think they had it in them or whatever. So the metaphor just keeps going. But yeah, it's, 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 it's naming and claiming, not in the prosperity gospel way, um, the the gifts on your team, like the, the talents on your team. Um, and so what I always tell people is, yeah, what would it look like? And this is a, f- a fun exercise that you can start with with 10 minutes and then obviously get more elaborate, elaborative later is, OK, write down your kids names, write down your names. So everyone in the family, write them down and maybe grandparents put them on there, too. Then make five or six columns. OK, and then just say, OK, strengths you know, and then put weaknesses, like you need to know what your kid's weaknesses are, right? Um, Put, you know, ways they feel loved in a column, you know, put, um, you know, things they're exceptionally good at. One column I would say is like, what do they offer the team that no one else on the team gives? So kind of like, what's their special sauce that like, Mm -hmm. if you took that kid out of the family, the family would have a massive gap on their team. What would that be? That's a fascinating exercise to ask, right? Um, And then when you start filling that out, start saying it out loud. Like that's what teams do. If like, we need you because X, Y, and Z. And we do that to our kids, right? One kid is a super strong leader. So we try to inflame that. And of course we have to disciple it and train it, make sure it's healthy, holy, biblical leadership, servant leadership. And then we have another kid. It's actually, our, we only have one boy, but he's like the most tenderhearted. He's sweeter than the girls, super intuitive, super emotionally sensitive. And so rather than, you know, in some weird stereotype way, trying to put that down, we think like that is 100% his gift on this team. And so we're always asking him like, hey, buddy, you are very good at sensing how our family's doing. If someone's sad, you're always the one that wants to go talk first. So we just say like lean into that. Like we need you. Like we would be a little bit rougher around the edges without you. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And so think about what that does to a boy too, by the way, rather than feeling like that's a weakness actually being like, no, that's a massive asset. Emotional, intelli- yeah, emotional intelligence so emotional intelligence is a massive asset, right? Um, and so we're trying to inflame that. And so it's just as simple as that. of just like, you name it, say it out loud all the time, constantly be going back to it. Um, because again, God gave you players on your team to go do his mission. Here, here's another way to put it. If you can only do them calling on your life by yourself, then what's the point of the, the, the family? Like what, mm. you know what I mean? Um, now, of course, that can be a division right. of the calling. Like like I want to say, like, with the goal is not hang out all the time, be together all the time. But but is it is it under a web? Is it under a web of a collective mission and calling? And how do those gifts interact with each other? That's a really fun kind of uh, phase to step into.
1: Dave always reads his strengths to me.
2: <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> so you guys a know just a reminder. Uh, and yes, exactly.
0: and yeah, my I weakness. usually leave with his weaknesses. <laughs> so. And then I'll make sure... I make and sure that probably, read yeah, I read his yeah. weaknesses are, that are also my strength as a double down on just kind of like, uh, <laughs> you know, um, you know, one thing I wonder about with that, something that I've found and I'm sure it takes a lot of discipline and being careful, but you know, it, it's funny because the dark side of that, that I've seen um, also is you got to really, and this is what I love about doing this podcast because you hear experts talk about this that we have on is how much attention you have to pay to your kids. Like... It's just so much attention, Mm. you know, like, and so the thing that I think could get tricky about that is that you sort of name your kids something and that's not and that, maybe they're changing out of that and you got to be careful that you don't sort of go like, you're our encourager. You're the sweet one. And then two years Mm -hmm. later, your son's like, yeah, but you know, I've got this other thing, or I just don't like being called that. (laughs) And then you got to, so it's, you know, the, the good thing is, is it means you're all, you're always hopefully exercising yep. the attention you're paying. Cause you know, you and your wife yes. may look up one day and be like, have you noticed that he doesn't respond? Or she, they, she's not responding to that like she used to. Totally and then you gotta right. sit down and go like, Hey honey, like tell me, she's like, you know, dad, this is not, yep. I'm trying to be more like this. You go, great. We just changed the, yep. the map. But I think that that's something that I think can get really tricky. Cause I do think a lot of families do that once and it's really early. And they go like, you know, and I think especially for sort of the male mind, because we need, we gotta understand everything. And so you can almost see dads yep. do that once the, once the kids get to a certain age, they're like, all right, he's my sweet yeah. kid, she's my tough, and, and this is my mm-hmm. little engineer. And then before yep. you know it, and then they go, peace yes. him out. Now, and then they're talking to their eighteen year old kid going, my engineer, and he's like, dude, I haven't done an engineer thing in 20, like, you know, since I was in seventh grade, like I paint now and it's like, yeah, but you kind of engineer paint. Right. And it's like, no. And so there is that weird thing that I think you got to be careful of, of doing that. But also again, just paying attention know that they may have seasons where they yeah. change and they may go through something with it. And, and cause I think there is also that thing, in kids it's like, you can't tell me what to do. So navigating that thing of like not being too totally. much of a name giver that it becomes detrimental, but also yeah. in a way that's paying attention and is true you yeah. know. Uh,
2: well, I think that's the difference between a good coach and a bad coach. There you go. That's it. well
0: said. Bad coaches, well said.
2: bad coaches are way too. Um, here's the, here's the answer. And I haven't even like studied or paid attention to my team for five minutes. <laughs> yeah, that's a good right. Point. Yeah, for sure. And, and good coaches are at their desk every single night, kind of like sweating, wiping their forehead and being yeah. like, man, okay, John, this, like always rearranging the pieces on the puzzle. Always. Yeah. Especially after yes. a season of loss, right? Yes. Like, yeah, yes. I, And again, yes. I, I'm, I'm they're very natural to me because I I played baseball my whole life all the way through college. But yeah, you get, you get a season of like, you know, a couple losses in a row and the coach is going to say, uh, we need to relook at things. We need to relook at things, right? Like maybe you need to change positions. So that's just, I I agree. I think it's just the difference between a good coach and a bad coach. And we have to be mindful to not be a bad coach because that is a, 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 you know, when we, if you don't, another way to put it is don't do this. If you, if you're only going to do it from your fringe hours, meaning like it's, it's, it takes full dedication yeah, to know great. your kid's hearts, to know their desires. Another one we put yeah. on there, which I think is a really helpful one spiritually speaking is, um, what's the, what's the, what's the core lie your kid believes? Mm. Like what's the core way, you know, the accuser, um, attacks your kid. Cause I think all, I think every single person has mm. one core lie. You know what I mean? Like, of course, he's going to attack you different yeah. ways, but like, there's one core one that he is going to scratch at for the next 50 years, um, mm. and you're as a parent, your job as the chief and uh, you know two spiritual leaders of the home is to you need to know that answer. Yeah, you need to know that answer because your job is to train your kids how to fight, how to resist, That's a great word, and how to how to go against that.
0: You uh, you have a graph in here that literally I thought about just burning like these pages and or writing in Sharpie or drawing like a mean your face, but like with devil horns, Jeff, but this coach verse, and it's exactly what we're talking about, but this coach verse babysitter thing, holy cow, is the, are those two pages convicting. And so what this is uh, for the listeners is it's three columns. The left one says topic, the middle one says coach, the right one says babysitter. And it's just really great and unbelievably convicting list of like, how a coach would handle it and how a babysitter would handle it. And, and Jeff is making yeah. this point that there's a, a big difference and parents can get into trouble when they're more babysitters than they are coaches. And I would say, and don't get mad when I say this, but this I would imagine probably really hits dads especially because you know, just the nature of sort of what work can tr- you yeah. know, typically look like home. But a great example is like, so topic would be primary concern. A coach would be to your point. Uh, Jeff you just said create fully developed and flourishing players a babysitter's primary concern is to meet child's basic needs and ensure their safety and I mean it, this thing just gets worse as it goes and I think you know we all have seasons but it's just you know as a dad it's hard not to read this sometimes and see like yeah I mean if, if it's tough well like yeah. end game so if topic is what's the end game the uh you know the coach is going to say the full development of the child the babysitter is going to say give momentary peace and happiness and I'm like but that's—I mean—that's not bad.
2: It's not great. It is <laughs> No, no. You know, and and I think I say it. I think I say it in the chapter. But the coach encapsulates all that the babysitter is. Mm. It's just only like one tenth of the coach. Does that make yes, sense? Yes. Or yes. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, yeah. so the babysitter is. If you're only a babysitter, that's way too low of a vision. But of course, the parent, you know, the coach wants the kids to be safe, right, right, secure, right, right, happiness. Right. But, but that isn't the driving goal. Like that isn't actually. Right. No coach would ever say. You know, you're on this team so that I can keep you safe. No, you're on this team so that we can win games and so that I can stretch you, so that I can develop you, so that I can turn you into something that you weren't a year yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's, that's just a way different philosophy, right? Yeah. But yeah. I think the encouragement, I would say, because I agree, again, that one that one cuts. Even when you say, I'm like, dang, I got, you know what I mean? Um, and I wrote it, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> is, um, I think the encouragement that I always tell dads with this, because it's so easy once you get into this stuff for dads to feel shame, to feel guilt, to feel um, a little bit of a burden. And and I would say is, first of all, this is a 50 year game. So like Hmm. play the long game, right? That's literally the premise is multi-generational family team on mission. Like this is about building a family that last name matters and you know, last name will change, but the impact will matter for 500 years. Hmm. So like, you know, a year or two is not that much. Just like put your head down, you know what I mean? Give yourself grace and just like start building towards that trajectory. But what I would say that is I think encouraging is what I tell most dads is, you actually, what, what is feel like a lot of shame or does feel like a lot of weight is if I hear something and I feel like I have no skills to do that. I'm like, man, I feel totally inept. I feel in no ability to do that. In my opinion, 9.999% of dads and 99.9% of dads, sorry. Um, I think have all of the skills to be a good parent coach. They're just putting it somewhere else. Yeah. They're putting it somewhere else. It's either at their, mostly at their job or it's in their hobby or it's, you know what I mean? In the workshop, it's in their music, whatever it is, right? Um, They're they're particular, they're crafty, they're dedicated, they're intentional, they're leader, like like it's just they're built, it's their DNA. So I think that's encouraging because what I say then is, hey, you have all of the skills to do this. You already are doing this. Just point them a different direction. Just kind of bring them home. Like bring that home and um, and it'll light the family up.
1: Well, and Dave, you're right. I think that culture does kind of point like it caters to the dad being the babysitter a little bit of course this is very generally speaking but you know and it and it shames the mom into being the ultimate 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 coach if a
2: dad's a babysitter it's a success
1: right we're I mean I've told this story on here before but I was pushing my daughters down the street one time on the sidewalk not on the street (laughs) had them both in the in the stroller doing literally like I couldn't be doing less as a dad (laughs) I'm I'm with my kids and I'm pushing them. And this sweet woman And you're
2: getting a gold medal.
1: Yes. She if she had a gold medal in her hand, this woman would have given it to me. She stops me and she says, "What a great dad you are." And I'm like, "What a great example of how I mean, it was sweet that she said that, of course. Blow but the bar. if yeah, that's so low. If my if my wife were pushing yeah. my kids, she probably she wouldn't have stopped my wife yes. and
0: said, what a great mom you are. She would have been she like, she might yeah, have been critical. She's like, why are you walking so slow? Like <laughs> too go. fast.
2: Yeah. Do they have all the right clothes on? Are they yes. getting cold? Yes. Do they need? And I yes. can tell they're yeah. on
1: screens too much.
2: Exactly. No, I mean, yeah. I think you're right, though. I think what that shows is that's that's the smoke signal of this problem. You know, what I mean, that that's right. the, that we actually see that as a success.
0: Yeah. Right. So, okay. So, so Jeff, one of the things I really want to talk about sort of toward the end of this, uh, our time, this is, so you got to let me sort of rant here for a second. So just bear with me because this is going somewhere with this, but something I have always really struggled with and and every now and then it'll come up in a podcast that I'm on where, you know, somebody's, this comes up and, and I can sort of, uh, rant a little bit and not feel bad because it's not my podcast, you know, but, but is, is, you know, is this sort of weird Billy Graham thing and it is so crazy mm. to me that you wrote about this at the end. Of the
2: that was show. the hardest part to write. That was that 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 part was difficult, Did man. Dude,
0: I so 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 here has been my dilemma with this and not the man because obviously what he was well even saying this I'm I'm sort of dipping into this norm, but but I think it's tough. the way that it's I've a, thought yeah. about this, let me say it that way, is obviously he was so effective you know and and then you read stories like undefeated or, or what's the book about the guy that uh, angelina jolie directed the movie about the world war ii vet that you know uh, un, yeah. undaunted, some un- strong un- word like that undefeated or unforgivable unforgivable but yes, unforgiven yeah, yeah but you know then that book ends <laughs> spoiler it? alert if you yeah. haven't seen it but you know he gets saved at a billy graham thing and his life changed so obviously the effects of, of what he's he's you know uh, billy graham did are, are, you know, they're everywhere, but I have always thought so much about his family. I just thought, I wonder how they did, And, and because I think he's a weird archetype in Christendom, because we see what he did, but we're not seeing what I would call his first ministry, right, of his family. And so you yeah. delve into this, and I couldn't. I mean, if you if you could see my book, it looks like I spilled black ink on basically the entire back half <laughs> of this book because yeah. this is stuff I think about. And, and I'm going to kind of fly through a little bit of this, and, and we can talk about it for a second. But um, so one of the you talk about first, you know, something that his daughter said. I mean, this was so sad to read, and I can't imagine how hard it was to write. But his daughter says after going through four to who endured four divorces? Um, I guess the movie, what is the movie called? Uh, Divorce Drugs, uh, or interview, I guess she said down the. Yeah, interview.
2: Oh, yeah, it was for like her book. Yeah, where she talks so about So, divorce, her
0: story. drugs, yeah, yeah. drinking Billy Graham's children mm-hmm. and their absent father, which that's already hard to read. But she says later, as you quoted, she went on to recall, I see how important the ministry was to him and how little the family was. And so mm-hmm. there's that. You go on and then you make these really great points. Again, this you were just nailing this target that I had sort of thought about but not really given a lot of, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, structure to. But how the problem is in so many families, there's kind this ministry bucket uh instead of a family bucket um they should they you know that they they're different things and uh and you put and without saying so directly the ministry bucket is considered to be much more important and uh and this just pings me so hard i think some of it's because my dad is a minister and i think he actually negotiated that pretty well Mm. um like he he didn't you know and he had his faults and all those things but for the most part just did a really good job of that's being a awesome. dad who was a pastor. Like yep. he, I'll never forget one of the most uh, vivid memories I have of, of of this kind of dynamic was we were growing up living in Mississippi in this tiny town. He gets a call at like five thirty. We're all sitting down for dinner, and I'll never forget this. He picks up and he says, "Hey, yeah, yeah, well, yes, I'm the pastor, but I'm at home. And so if you need anybody, you can call the deacon. Here's his number. That's that's what they're there for. Mm. Okay, thank you. That's and I awesome. remember in that moment I thought. Well, that's kind of a jerk thing to do dad and that's kind of your job <laughs> and now i look back yes. on this and i think what a gift he, he had given us but i think yeah. you know it, this whole dilemma and i think man especially in kristen we actually talked to john mark about this uh, a little bit earlier today when he was over for his interview is that there's mm. this real disconnect in christianity about mission being the the thing and what i would argue the the, the misunderstanding is family is the mission the mission is the family first and everything yeah. goes out of that. And you do this incredible yeah. job articulating that through so many pages here. Mm-hmm. And I felt, so, I mean, honestly, I felt so seen. I felt like we had avatared. I was like, uh, <laughs> you know, just seeing that someone thought about this cause it's a tricky totally. thing to talk about because people feel yeah. so like, especially when you talk about Billy Graham, again, who, you know, I have so much respect for, but at the same time, I'm like, totally. does God, need? this is always what I think. Did God need Billy Graham?
2: Yeah, hundred percent. That's the that, best way to put you know, it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and I think that was it. it, it should shake us up because it's difficult um, conversation, but also I think why it should shake us up the most is because it's so such a high temptation for everyone. Again, in the Western evangelical kind of context, yeah. um, where it's very easy, we make it very easy um, to sacrifice your family on the altar of ministry. Yeah, we make it very easy. Yeah, that's that's problematic. So the the quick you know, thing I give that I think gives a framework for people is, um, there's kind of, there's, there's three ways to think about it. Two of them are wrong, you know, and one's biblical, I think. And it's, it's, um, the first one is kind of the family and uh, mission, right? Family and mission. Right. And so that would be the Billy Graham one, right? Where like you have your family and you have your mission, but they are separate. They should never touch. They should not cross paths. And the mission is more important. Like this is God's real work. And then, you know, the wife can just stay at home and make sure the kids survive, you know. Um, And so that but that's it's kind of a separation. It's a disintegration of family and mission. Then there's what I call another wrong one. What's the opposite of that, which is family is the mission. Right or family as mission, and that would be a little bit more of like the homeschooly. You know, what I mean, every kid has to wear helmets and like right. make them really moral and read Left Behind. You know, and we homeschool, by the way, so I'm not even knocking. Like, you know, Dude, um, are you this is this you, is, this, you know kids wear helmets. You know, you know this wearing helmets, reading Left Behind, and making sure that they're going to be able to you know what I mean, survive the apocalypse. But, but, but what it is is it's like you know, and, and I think kids in this environment feel that pressure massively of like the kid. Oh yeah. How, the kid turning out perfect and moral and Christian is the mission, is the mm. mission. Right. That that crushes kids, by the way. Yeah. Ask any child who was raised in that context, crushes them. Um, and then there's the third bucket, which Dave, you kind of alluded to already, is a family on mission, mm. where is like actually more like this, see, see it like a dartboard or a bullseye. Family's the center, and there is a ton of ripples that happen in life, mm. ministry, work, vocation, hobbies, life, relationships, city, network, etc. But family's just going to be a place where the, the hub of the activity is flowing from, mm. right? Um, and sometimes we go separately because, you know what I mean, like this kid or this parent has a particular calling or assignment. And sometimes, they, I almost, the, the way I allude to it for a helpful way to think about it, again, to not just think like, oh, does this mean we have to all hang out together? is think of your family like a company and think of your family separately as the board of directors of that company, okay? So when you're the board of directors, the whole family's sitting around the table making the big decisions going through the big budgets, deciding what the purpose and the vision is of the company, okay? Then once you get into the company layer, then you're going to have CEO, product developer, et cetera, and they're going to go their separate ways. But it's a unified, like, board of directors, you know what I mean? So I, I know it's a weird way to think about it, but I always think about our family as part board of directors. We all get to sit at the table and drive this team, especially as the kids get older and older, But of course, we're also going to have our own things that we do in the company um, below us. So, yeah, Yeah. but I I agree that that's a that's a hard one. Anyone in ministry context, anyone who's paid to do anything religious, (laughs) you know, to say it simply, um, difficult, difficult space to, to, uh, navigate. I'll add to your point that you kind of say in there, and and yes, that is, that is,
0: uh, the tip of the spear to me is the sort of religious spin that gets put on it. But I think it's just as easy to, to put, and you talk about this in the book, but put money there. Cause I think both, you can have a, a husband and wife that agree like money is paramount. So whatever it takes to make it, we'll take the hit because that's what really matters. And so I think as much as religion is definitely sort of higher on the scale of things that are, You know, I I think there's so many things you can put in there that's just kind of like, no, we still bow at the altar of this thing. It's just, we're justifying our, our decisions based on this one paradigm you know um and i I have to read these two quotes because they are so incredible and 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 then we get (laughs) to the last couple questions these quotes just i was like i may get these tattooed in hebrew uh on my lower back (laughs) so only people that see me with a shirt off Um, sam um so one was basically and buckle up folks because these aren't going to feel good but but it's you know you may wake up in the morning be like i'm glad I'm glad uh, that it's like exercising to me. These quotes, like you aren't, they aren't fun to hear, but yeah. maybe later you like these good. One, basically we work super hard to provide a lifestyle that our kids don't even want. We want it, but mm-hmm. our kids don't want a lifestyle. They want us. So there's your first little slap across the face, but it's a respectful, <laughs> loving slap. Second one is, uh, so as parents, we have to wrestle with whether money and work conversations are more about us than the kids, because you don't always find a kid who says, or you won't, always find a kid who says, yeah, I wish my dad and mom were gone a little longer so we could have a few nicer things or keep up a lifestyle that is already unsustainable. (laughs) I mean, that is (laughs) such a shot across the bow to me. And so, powerful when it comes to these reminders i think all parents have to feel because i think there's a good part of that some of that is we really want our kids to be okay and we want them to be able to eat and be comfortable and live a, a way that we think is fun and engaging and creative and yeah. joyful but there's also a part of it that, that boy you get chained to that thing quickly and you and that thing flips on you and you're in real trouble um, so I, I so appreciate those things. So, so, Damn. so, um, we always do two questions to end our time. I yeah. don't think,
2: I don't even know if I would add anything to that. Cause that's just like, oh yeah, that's, I, I said that better than I could say. Yeah. Now.
0: Well, you said it. I mean, I, I don't know what, you know, you already nailed it. Um, so, so, uh, we have two questions that we end the podcast with. Um, I'll ask the first one and John will ask you the second one. So what is the one thing that you want your kids to know?
2: Good question. I would say the one thing I want them to know is that they are valuable in the kingdom of God. And one of the primary places they can flourish isn't the lies that culture gives them, but this family unit, this family team. Now there's a lot more to that, but that's, mm. that's one I would say right there. I love mm. that. I love that.
1: All right. Last question. What do you want your kids to say at your funeral?
2: Oh, Ooh. <laughs> same thing at some level, but I think, um, man, I think, and again, this gets back to the driving force, right? Of like, what do I, what am I always thinking about when I'm trying to parent, whatever. And just, I think just presence, I would really hope they would say that I was present. Um, and that's become a little bit of a cliche, but I mean, genuinely like present to their needs, their emotions. Yeah. Um, and that just that I was, a, you know, I don't think they would use this, maybe this language, but that I was, uh, they would have seen me as, as, as a good coach that I was always there to, to kind of shepherd, to guide, to mentor. Um, cause I think that's what it's about, you know? Um, mm and that yeah, yeah that, that I loved them loved the family and that uh yeah oh that's a fun question I'm going to think on that more and even say like hey let's come back for yeah yeah episode 2 and yeah. answer that this longer this is a dry I, well, that's run
0: great podcast anyway so
1: because we want to have you back on, and, and uh, I would love to advocate that we come to
2: you next time, since you're in Maui. Yeah, that's Naui. please.
0: Yeah, if you have a budget, deal. For we got that, space. I'm amazing. up in the
2: barn right now. We got some square okay, footage. Good. I'll yeah. I'll set up a, a table up here. It's a
0: little piece of the ground I could check. So, guys, if you're if if uh, you're still listening, I'm glad you are. This is a wonderful, wonderful book. Take Back Your Family by Jeff Bethke. It is really 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 wonderful i can't uh say enough about it so thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us too jeff it's it's really, really compelling it. challenging wonderful stuff
2: thank you man thanks for having me you guys <laughs>